0: From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Colorado Congresswoman Diana DeGette calls President Donald Trump a real danger to this country. She's one of the sponsors of an article of impeachment accusing him of inciting an insurrection after rioters stormed the U.S. Capitol building. She joins us live to talk about next steps. Then, in one week, Kamala Harris makes history when she's inaugurated vice president. She's the first Black and South Asian woman to hold that job. We'll talk with one of her friends and colleagues in Colorado about breaking that glass ceiling. Plus, the balancing act for restaurants and the pandemic. Faced with trying to stay in business while keeping patrons safe, do current health guidelines accurately convey the risks? We'll explore the modeling. And we return to Zephyr View Cabin, designated a local historic landmark in Gilpin County.
1: During a time when so many of us have been physically distanced from friends, neighbors, and colleagues, your generous support has helped Colorado Public Radio bridge the gaps, bringing our community together through the stories that connect us all. Voluntary support is the lifeblood of the content and coverage we all rely on, Thank you for being our partner in making this kind of radio happen for the Colorado community each and every day.
0: This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Avery Lill. The U.S. House is moving toward a vote to impeach President Donald Trump. Congress is expected to vote later today on a resolution demanding that Vice President Mike Pence invoke the 25th Amendment to oust President Trump. If Pence doesn't do that, the impeachment vote will be tomorrow. This comes after the January 6th attack on the Capitol and with some questions about impeachment from President-elect Joe Biden. I'm joined by the Dean of Colorado's Congressional Delegation, Democratic Representative Diana DeGette of Denver. Congresswoman, welcome to the program.
2: Thank you. Great being with you.
0: President-elect Joe Biden said yesterday the rioters should be prosecuted, and he knows there will be an impeachment trial. But he's asked Senate leaders if there's a way they can hold a trial and work on his priorities, approving a cabinet and a stimulus package. At the same time, is it worth taking all this attention away from a new president and his goals at a crucial time for the country?
2: Well, I, I've gotta say we've got a much more imminent threat, and that imminent threat is Donald J. Trump. We would we I think Speaker Pelosi would have hoped that he would resign and and we've been today we'll as you said, we'll have a vote on the twenty fifth amendment urging Vice President Pence and the cabinet to remove the president. We would hope that would put pressure on the president to resign as well as the imminent impeachment vote tomorrow. But remember, the House has its duty, the impeachment, the articles, or in this case, the article of impeachment is really like the charging document saying, Donald Trump, you encourage sedition, and those actions are actions that would cause you to be removed. Uh, What the Senate does in terms of the trial, they'll have to work that out, but, but what we're trying to do is use every tool in our power to get this very dangerous man removed. Don't forget, he's got his finger on the nuclear codes. I mean, he he could do a lot of damage between now and next week.
0: You use the word imminent quite a bit. But what would the real impact of impeachment be, given that the trial would likely be after President Trump leaves office?
2: Well, the first, the, the, the as I said, we continue to hope that in the next few days, every day what we're saying is he continues to be a risk, and we believe that Vice President Pence and the Cabinet should remove him immediately or he should resign. So we're putting all the pressure we can. Now, if, if, if he doesn't do that and we impeach him, well, a Senate conviction could have a number of important results. Number one, he would never be allowed to have federal, hold federal office again. Number two, he would lose things like his pension and other, other, uh, and his annual salary. Other ways to say this is just not appropriate. Now, Colorado Congress. I've never seen anything. You know, I gotta say, I've never seen anything like this in my life. And I've been, I was in Congress for September 11th. I was cowering in the. House Gallery, along with Jason Crow, listening to gunshots in the Speaker's lobby. And all of these people were instigated by the President of the United
0: States. And we should say for clarity that if the Senate were to convict, they would have to hold a separate separate vote on whether he could hold office again, correct? I believe that's right. Now, Colorado Congressman Ken Buck has written President-elect Biden asking him to stop the impeachment. Buck wrote that the impeachment is, quoting here, as unnecessary as it is inflammatory. What is your response to Republicans who say that this is a very partisan action?
2: (laughs) Well, I would say, give me a break. Here's a man who incited thousands of people to walk from the White House up the mall to the Capitol to stop the proceedings certifying um, his his uh, his replacement Joe Biden. So um, I, I find it to be uh, a little rich that people like Ken Buck are now saying that this is that this is causing a division. What they should do, what people like Congressman Buck and others should do, if they're really worried about the division in this country, then they should. They should work with Vice President Pence and the cabinet to remove this dangerous man. And they should work with us to try to come together to put put together an agenda. And by the way, I've heard from a lot of my Republican colleagues in the last few days. They haven't been as vocal, but they understand how dangerous Donald Trump is. And I would suspect we will have Republican votes on this impeachment
0: When the House impeached President Trump in late 2019, you presided over some of the sessions. Will you have a rule this time? And if so, what will it be?
2: Well, I'm always I I was honored that Nancy Pelosi asked me to preside over the uh, impeachment of President Trump. Uh, And she asked me to do that because I have a reputation of being fair by both sides of the aisle. And I wanted to make sure that we had a fair proceeding and that we had, um, and that we limited some of the uh, rancor and hostility that can go on on the floor. Um, I, I have told the speaker that I'm willing to help out again in any way that she needs, and that's one reason why last Friday I I was scheduled to come home to Colorado like I do every weekend, but I canceled my I canceled my flight and I've stayed here in D.C. Uh, since then, this morning, I uh, opened up the House for the pro forma session. So I, I'll help the speaker in any way she needs me.
0: Going back to January 6th, two Colorado Republicans voted to object to certification of the Electoral College votes from certain states. And that's Representative Lauren Boebert of Silt, Colorado, and Representative Doug Lambord of Colorado Springs. On Monday, a resolution was introduced calling for lawmakers who objected to be expelled from Congress. Do you agree with that position? I think we need to. Uh,
2: I, I, first of all, uh, as I said on the House floor last Wednesday, when we finally completed the debate, I said, you know, on Sunday, on the third of January, we all took an oath to uphold the Constitution, and then and then these members uh, v- voted for these efforts to overturn legally certified results by the states. I don't think that that's upholding the Constitution. But I think we'll have to figure out later what we do with the 139 Republicans who voted for either one or both of those resolutions. And when you I s- do think it was an abrogation of their constitutional oath.
0: Do you support expelling them from Congress?
2: I, I think we're going to have to I think we'll have to look at it. I-, I-, I frankly haven't had a lot of time to do the research because I've been busy uh, trying to make sure that we can remove the imminent threat, and the imminent threat is Donald Trump.
0: Representative Boebert in particular has been quite outspoken in this regard. On the day of the insurrection, she tweeted, Today is 1776, and there is now an organized push for her to resign. Do you think she should?
2: Well, again, I've I've asked uh, my staff to compile. It's not just Representative Boebert. There's others, uh, Mo Brooks um, and others who seem to take a heightened role in in the um, in the inflaming of emotions. But I I need to do the research about all of these members to see exactly what they did say. Uh, Were they just exercising their First Amendment right or were they actually inciting sedition? And so uh, that's what we're working on right now.
0: Now, Democratic Congressman Jason Crow has been very critical of Boebert and they've sparred quite a bit on Twitter. Do you think that this will make it more difficult for them to work together?
2: Well, Congresswoman Boebert is a brand new member of Congress. She just got here. Uh, her maiden speech was on the floor uh, in the effort to overturn the legally certified results. So I'm I'm not really sure how much she intends to try to work in a bipartisan way on legislation. I haven't seen any evidence of that yet. <laughs>
0: Now, President elect Biden has said he wants to speed up COVID nineteen vaccinations and pass a stimulus package. What do you think his next priority should be and what are your legislative priorities going forward?
2: So so thank you for asking that question because I think um and, and I actually believe that after the inauguration next week, we're gonna have a real opportunity for some bipartisan legislation. The first thing as you said is um is speeding up the COVID response, both the vaccinations and also efforts to help state and local governments, small businesses and individuals get their feet back. And so that'll be the first effort. The second effort will be to make sure that we shore up the economy. Um, I'm, I'm working on, as a member of the Energy and Commerce Committee on those issues, but I'm also working on legislation on climate change. The Biden administration has, has uh, said that's one of their top priorities and it's an urgency that needs to be addressed. Um, and so I've got legislation on climate change. I'll be reintroducing my wilderness bill. And with Joe Manchin, now the chair of the appropriate committee in the Senate, I have a great deal of hope of passing that bill early in the session because he supports the legislation. And, of course, I have bipartisan support for that bill. Uh, So there's going to be a lot of really good opportunities as we move into the spring and summer.
0: Now, President-elect Biden is scheduled to announce a new plan for vaccines later this week. In your view, what is the first step he should take there?
2: Well, what he needs to do is something the Trump administration just failed to do, which is to take control of a national strategy for distribution of the vaccines, especially as we move into vaccinating the general public. So so the president needs to work with, the, obviously, with the state governments, but we need to have a federal response, either um, stadiums or large venues where we can have uh, a, a robust, organized, coordinated effort to to um, vaccinate millions of Americans this spring.
0: Related to the virus after the rioters breached the Capitol last Wednesday, you went with many of your colleagues to a secure location. Some people didn't have masks on and declined when they were offered. At least one person in the room has since tested positive for COVID-19. Have you been tested? Yes.
2: So I was one of the people who was uh, stuck in the gallery. I was right next to Jason Crow, actually. And so we were stuck there, and then uh, uh, eventually we uh, uh, we were evacuated to this safe room. And there were several hundred people in the safe room. I was in this room for six hours. And the whole time I was sitting there, I had my mask on, of course, but the whole time I was sitting there, I was thinking, this is going to be a super spreader event, because there was this group of Republicans who absolutely refused to put masks on. And I saw my colleague, Lisa Blunt Rochester, try to get them to put masks on. They just scoffed at her. Well, as you said, now Bonnie Watson Coleman, age 75, has been diagnosed with coronavirus. And now, just last night, my colleague Pramila Jayapal, who was there with me, was diagnosed. So it's two people so far. I had a test yesterday. Mercifully, I have tested. Uh, the test has come back negative. But I'm going to have another test before I come back home at the end of the week.
0: Well, I'm glad to hear that you're negative for now. I'm. Can you imagine? I mean, it's just
2: terrible. First, first, you're the you're you're the victim of this incursion of the capital, and then and then. Now, the um, the the safe area becomes a super-spreader event.
0: Representative DeGette, thank you so much for your time.
2: I'm so glad to be with you. Thank you so much.
0: Appreciate it. Democratic Congresswoman, Democratic Congresswoman Diana DeGette represents Denver and is among the sponsors of an article of impeachment against President Trump. The U.S. will mark another important milestone in its history the next week, inaugurating Kamala Harris as the first Black and South Asian woman to be vice president. Her supporters her- heralded her election as another crack in the glass ceiling, another barrier broken for women of color. Democratic State Representative Leslie Harrod of Denver joins us to talk about what it's like to see her friend and mentor become the next vice president. Representative Harrod, welcome. Thanks so much for having me. After a year filled with reckoning with racial injustice, what is it like to see Harris ascend to the vice presidency?
3: You know, this is definitely a historic moment. To see a Black and Indian woman ascend to the White House as vice president is, of course, something this country has never seen before, but something that we can be so proud to say. That American Supported. I look forward to seeing what she does in the administration and I know she will do us proud.
0: Let's go back to November 7th when the race was officially called for Joe Biden and Kamala Harris. Where were you when you heard the news?
3: Oh, man, you know, I was actually uh, in the mountains uh, when I heard the news finally, finally being announced. Since you know, a lot of us were glued to our TV screen for days on end until the results were final. And I just got to say that I was ecstatic. You know, I had been uh, saving my bubbles for that moment, and I was so glad that I was able to um, to celebrate that and, you know, to be able to also just give a uh, thanks to the Coloradans who showed up in support, but also all of the campaign workers who campaigned through this very crazy time of pandemic, you know, um, to make sure that the American public knew what Biden and Harris stood for, knew how important this election was and showed out to vote in historic numbers.
0: And tell me a little bit more about what this stands for. What does it mean for the country that the first woman VP is also a person of color?
3: You know, I think it stands for it marks a time in our history um, where we as a country are saying we are ready to move past Um, and move through white supremacy and and racism and sexism and say that it is time to put a woman of color in the Oval Office. It is time for Biden to be our president and it is time to move forward as a country. I think that's really what this is saying and and, and what it stands for. And and I think it also is a time to unite, you know, The Biden-Harris campaign, and I know the Biden-Harris administration, will be looking at building back stronger and better after the pandemic, but also uniting this country after the pandemic of racism and white supremacy that we now see is so rampant throughout this country and must be addressed.
0: What are you hearing from others in the Black community? Is there a renewed sense of hope that Harris's election could be a step toward lasting change?
3: Oh, there is definitely hope and celebration um, for uh, this transition right Um, but but it's hard to to talk about that hope without also um, the despair uh, that is going on within the black community after seeing um, and the events of this week uh, after seeing the continual uh, murder of black people at the hands of law enforcement with zero to no accountability. But with that is this promise of Georgia flipping um, and 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 Kamala Harris sitting into the White House. It's a very uh, mixed emotion time. You know, I think you can catch me uh, at one time being very excited and ready for this inauguration and another time being very concerned for for the community and, and for this country um, and, and hoping uh, beyond hope that we will be able to not only move past these issues, but address them head on so that we can have some reconciliation as a country. Um, and, and that's how I believe we will be stronger.
0: And you mentioned Georgia. Now that the results of those runoff races are in, Harris is set to be one of the more powerful vice presidents, since she'll be presiding over an evenly split Senate and will cast the tie-breaking vote. Do you think this will hinder the time that she could spend on other vice presidential duties?
3: You know, quite frankly, <laughs> if anyone is capable of doing it, it's um, it's Kamala Harris. So I am not worried about her being capable to get it done. Um, but what you said was such a beautiful symphony of what is coming together around um, Kamala Harris ascending into the White House as Vice President and having this massive role in the Senate. Um, you know, it is it is time for a woman of color to be in this position. It's also time for a woman of color to have power in this position. And I believe the cards have aligned and put her in a place where she is meant to be to take this country where we need to go.
0: The hope and the excitement surrounding Harris's election, it looks similar to 2008 when Barack Obama was first elected. A lot of people were excited about the first black president, but during his eight years in office, a lot of activists were disappointed that he didn't do enough to advance black issues in the country. Do you have the same worry about Harris?
3: Absolutely not. And I didn't have the worry or share that concern with um, President Obama. President Obama paved the way for Kamala Harris. President Obama paved the way for me um, and paved the way for, for conversation. But uh, to be clear, the country had not addressed these issues head on in in since our inception. And quite frankly, um, you know, being the first Black president comes with its own weight. And he had to bear that burden. Him and the first family, you know, uh, had a lot to get over, but also had to bring our country through a recession. So, so you know, no, I don't think that it's accurate that uh, President Barack Obama didn't do enough for the Black community. And I do believe that, that the Biden-Harris team will do even more, um, but it's gonna be incumbent upon all of us as citizens of this country, as people of America to step up and say, it's time for us to address the racial inequalities that so very are so very real in society and that we can no longer say don't exist or turn a blind eye to.
0: And you talk about that weight of being first. Do you worry that Harris will also be held to a different and maybe unfair standard than her predecessors?
3: Absolutely. And I believe that she has her entire career um, and and as have so many uh, women of color that have uh, been put into positions of leadership. Um, It absolutely will happen. But again, she has the tools to succeed, not only to do it very well, but to inspire so many other women of color to take that next step into leadership. So uh, I believe that she is poised to be our strongest vice president, excuse me, Mr. President Biden, Uh, but I think she is poised to be our strongest vice president and to lead this country again where we need to go and inspire us all to do the very necessary work of making our country better.
0: Now let's pivot to the Colorado General Assembly's regular session, which formally opens tomorrow. Tell me about some of the priorities you have for the coming year.
3: Well, I look forward to uh, reconvening uh, this week and then um, continuing the work on the Joint Budget Committee. You know, I believe it is past time for us to put our values of Black Lives Matter and uh, racial equity into the budget and ensure that we are implementing programs um, that really do have an impact on this issue. Um, and so I look forward to working with my colleagues on the Joint Budget Committee around that, around the distribution of stimulus dollars, um, as well as how we can, um, you know, build back stronger and not the same, right? Um, what, what We need to address the inequalities in our educational system, in our criminal justice system, in policing, um, in business and housing. And those are all issues that the General Assembly will tackle. You know, my colleagues are ready to come back strong. We're ready to work in a bipartisan manner to get things done Mm -hmm. for the people of Colorado. And I'm proud to say that we will have the support of the the federal Mm -hmm. (laughs) government in these efforts. Um, And, of course, uh, the support of Governor Jared Polis, who who sits on the first floor of this Capitol building.
0: Representative Harrod, thank you for joining us. Democratic Representative Leslie Harrod is the first Black LGBTQ woman to be elected to the Colorado General Assembly. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Hi, I'm Anne-Marie Awad, host of the CPR News podcast On Something. This past
4: fall, we hosted our first ever live storytelling event about the way drugs and family can overlap.
2: When you are raised by a drug addict, the drug
4: erases them. You can hear stories from that night right now in a special bonus episode of On Something, available wherever you get your podcasts. And make sure you're subscribed for Season 3 of On Something, coming this spring.
0: This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Avery Lowe. Restaurants across the state are opening their indoor dining rooms as coronavirus restrictions ease. Some researchers say the risk of indoor dining is more dangerous than current health guidelines reflect. With us are members of the Colorado COVID-19 modeling team at the Colorado School of Public Health. Elizabeth Carlton is an environmental epidemiologist and Dr. Jonathan Samet is a pulmonary physician, epidemiologist and dean of the Colorado School of Public Health. Welcome to you both. Thanks for having us. You both have been vocal that you think indoor dining should be closed. You wrote an op-ed in the Denver Post to that effect about a month ago. It said the science is clear. The riskiest places for coronavirus spread are indoor spaces like dining rooms. Jonathan, tell me more about the research that convinces you that we shouldn't be gathering inside
5: to eat. Well, we have very good evidence that small particles... Uh, transmit the SARS uh, coronavirus. And um, this uh, is of concern. These particles can spread across um, indoor spaces. And of course, people um, in restaurants have their masks off most of the time. They may be talking loudly, which generates even more of these um, small particles. So particularly as we're trying to bring down the epidemic curve, restaurants are one of those places where we are concerned about uh, both the uh, clients and and particularly those who work there and exposed uh, across their whole workday.
0: You have a lot of concern for restaurant workers. Elizabeth, can you explain the triple jeopardy that they face?
6: Yeah, workers spend the most time in the restaurant um, compared to diners. So if you think about your risk of exposure being related to how long you spend in a space where people are not wearing masks, they face perhaps the highest exposure Um, They also are at risk of taking home infections to their families if they indeed become infected. We know that if someone is infected, they have about a 50 percent chance of spreading the infection to each member of their household. And lastly, workers face the risk of losing their jobs when restaurants are closed um, uh, due to these restrictions, which has enormous financial um, implications for them.
0: That brings us to the elephant in the room. Restaurants operate on razor-thin margins, even in good times. In the op-ed, you acknowledge the financial devastation restaurant owners and their employees face without indoor dining. Let's bring in Ryan Flutter, the owner of Barolo Grill in Denver. Hi, Ryan. I'm glad to have you with us.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: Um, Ryan, you're all too familiar with the pandemic's financial crisis. Tell me about how the virus has affected your business.
1: Well, yeah, it's been 10 months, almost 11, I guess. And um, we've been massively maimed um, when this all started back in March and all the restaurants closed. We went into to-go food only, which you know brings us uh, maybe 10 or 15 of percent a, of a revenue stream that we would have. Um, and we've been doing this off and on since the mandates have opened and closed throughout the uh, last 10, 11 months. Uh, We've had zero infections or zero issues with our staff. We've been open the entire time and and we've had thousands of guests. So we've we've been doing some things in particular to get through this um, obstacle course.
0: Your restaurants are open right now under current COVID guidelines. You just heard two epidemiologists saying opening doors for the restaurant dining rooms can lead to super spreader events. How do you respond to those concerns?
1: You know, I think as a general statement, that's perhaps correct with uh, certain operators, of course. And I think then there's those of us without uh, trying to be arrogant or smug. You know, we've been going uh, well beyond what the epidemiology recommendations or state mandates have been. And and maybe that's helped us with uh, um, being extraordinarily safe while we're open and doing a hybrid of uh, various different mandate sort of recommendations that has given us data that. That We've had zero infections um, in amongst our staff and our guests over the last uh, 10 months.
0: I, I wonder how you can be confident that there are no infections among your guests over the last 10 months.
1: You know, there's definitely certainly a way to uh, we, we would always be questioning anyone in the room, of course, with all the asymptomatics and everything else that we've learned. Um, we do a tremendous um, scanning Um discourse with our guests before they arrive. We do thermal scans. Um, Everyone's under the understanding that they've not been around anyone who's been sick or to their best knowledge. And so we've just mitigated it as much as maybe anyone humanly possible. Um, and, And perhaps that's given us some of the effect.
0: So there are a lot of safety precautions that you are taking.
1: We Indeed. We have sanitizer on all the tables from the moment you touch any handles in the doors. All the doors are propped open. There's just a tremendous amount of things we've done in our environment.
0: Elizabeth, Ryan spoke a little bit about the things that they've done, even contact tracing. How effective is contact tracing when it comes to tracking customer-to-employee infection or vice versa? You know,
6: contact tracing um, in the U.S. is mostly what we call forward-looking. So um, once you idea a case, you ask them to identify their contacts, um, their recent contacts, and ask them to stay home. We do this because um, people who are infectious before they show symptoms. And of course some people may never show symptoms. This is an extremely effective strategy for slowing the spread of infections, but it's not a very effective strategy for figuring out the sources of, in- of infections. That type of contact tracing is what we call backward looking. And because um, the public health workforce has been stretched so thin um, in the current outbreak, There has not been as much backward-looking or kind of source-tracing, type contact tracing. It's easiest in the current environment to identify clusters that are among people who we know spend time together, among members of a household, among workers. It's much harder right now to find diner-to-diner or diner-to-worker transmission um, because of the system.
0: Jonathan, Governor Polis told counties that they can ease coronavirus guidelines just days after a new, more infectious COVID-19 strain pres- presence was discovered in the state. Now we're seeing a rise, likely from holiday travel. Is now a good time to be opening up?
5: Well, yeah, that, that's a tough question, of course, to um, to answer. I mean, we don't know yet how widespread the uh, new variant is in Colorado. Of course, we had the uh, dubious distinction of being the first place in the U.S. where it was identified. So that's one concern. I guess on the plus side of saying now is not a bad time to open up is that for about the last five weeks or so, we've uh, had a a downward-going epidemic curve, which is uh, good news, uh, but we're at a very uh, critical juncture. And I think we have to hope that the combination of any hospital, any holiday-related surge, and possibly uh, the reopening of restaurants won't have a combined impact pushing us in the wrong direction. So we are uh, watching uh, carefully where things go over the next uh, week or so, and we will find out if this was in fact an okay moment to um, to reopen. I, I think uh, that uh, we were. At the right point in terms of where the epidemic curve had been uh, going. And I think uh, our hope and along I'm sure with uh, Ryan and everyone else is that we won't see an uptick uh, this month.
0: You call it a critical point for the pandemic, and it is also a critical financial point. One of the big reasons restaurants have to reopen is because closing means almost certain financial ruin. The federal government has the power to help out struggling businesses and employees more, but Democrats and Republicans have so far failed to reach any groundbreaking agreement regarding a stimulus. Ryan, what would more stimulus money mean for your restaurant?
1: you know the stimulus is critical we um i've got two restaurants one that may uh, may not make it um and one that may and it's um uh, perhaps a little bit too late for a number of restaurants who are hanging on a thread where uh 25% capacity if we're lucky um is enough to maybe you know sort of partially pay some of the bills and there's just no sustainable recipe for that you need to be at 50% and with plenty of spatial distancing and all the other things that keep it safe. So, um, without a stimulus, we are uh, kind of like a Matrix movie jumping from one ledge to the other without a net on the bottom to land uh, without question. And uh, something more restaurant focused, we've been so heavily hit. It has um, the, 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 demonst- the, I think the disruption that has occurred is, is actually not shown itself entirely yet.
0: Do you know what you would need in a stimulus to make your restaurants viable?
1: Well, it seems that certainly the unemployment factor and the PPP and the keeping, uh, which is a sort of small piece of the recipe, but being able to, we we only can do our work when we're physically there. We can't work from home, so our business is entirely um, dem- is 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 dependent on. Um, Our activities indoors and with what we do with our guests, we just can't move into a virtual workspace like retail or some other uh, folks have been able to do. So it's critical to have a stimulus to uh, cover the gap until uh, vaccines and other things maybe get us further and and coronaviruses um, uh, drop to be safe again.
0: Elizabeth, it seems likely that restaurants will remain open as long as Polis allows them to. What would you recommend to owners who are looking to make their restaurants as safe as possible and potential customers gauging whether or not to eat out?
6: I think it's important to be clear that we think there is almost no risk in getting takeout from restaurants, and we think outdoor dining is much safer than indoor dining. Um, I think that indoor dining is really risky right now. We still think about one in a hundred Coloradans are infectious. There's a new variant out there. Um, And so if, particularly if you fall in a high risk group um, you should think really carefully about that decision. And this is true both for the diner and for the worker and for the workers, unfortunately they have the risk of spreading infections um, to their household members. Um, so trying to prioritize keeping the workers who live with high-risk individuals safe as well.
0: And Ryan, what about you? Do you see other shops in the industry that they should be adopting more strict policies like you have?
1: I, I think without a doubt. Matter of fact, some of them have given us a bad name, and this is why we're having this discussion is some restaurants don't have the airspace, the distancing, the contact tracing, and you know, the also the wherewith to to go above and beyond to keep their staff and guests safe. And, you know, in, in my 11 months experience with literally thousands and thousands of guests, we just have had our data show that what, what we've been doing has has not infected any staff members at all or vendors or or our guests. Uh, I think that's the best you can really ask for. So I think practices uh, do impact um, how this uh, demonstrates itself within the industry and in, in, in an overall um, closure of the entire industry versus a case-by-case, perhaps those who've participated at different levels. Um, I think is the, the answer to getting through this.
0: I want to uh, thank you. I want to thank you all so much for joining us. Environmental epidemiologist Elizabeth Carlton, along with pulmonary physician and epidemiologist Dr. Jonathan Samet. Both are members of the Colorado COVID-19 modeling team. Ryan Fletter owns Barolo Grill in Denver. <laughs> Thank you. When it was created in the 1920s, Lincoln Hills was the only resort west of the Mississippi built by and for black people. Winks Lodge drew visitors from across the country, including celebrities. In the summers, dozens of black girls attended the YMCA's Camp Nazone, and it was included in the Green Book, a travel guide that highlighted places safe for black people during intense segregation in the 1930s. Winks Lodge closed in the 1960s, but Lincoln Hills is still a getaway for many Denver families who bought land. There. The Zephyr View cabin at Lincoln Hills was unanimously designated a local historic landmark in Gilpin County in November. It's owned by Gary Jackson, a Denver District Court judge. I spoke last summer with Jackson and his mom, Nancy. She started going to Lincoln Hills in 1926 when she was just four years old. Mrs. Jackson, your father was one of the first to build a cabin at Lincoln Hills. He bought four lots for $40 each in 1928. He actually wrote a letter to the Lincoln Hills Company that he was so surprised by how beautiful it was, even though the price was so ridiculously low, he feared the site would be inferior to others. What does the land look like?
7: Oh, the land, there were not a lot of trees on it. It was kind of barren. lots of rocks. Lots of pretty wildflowers, and it was on a hill, a great big rock on the, on the, in the middle of the land, and then down from the land was
0: the, the creek. And how did it develop? What does it look like now?
7: Very, very pretty. Lots of trees, lots of aspen, lots of pine trees, lots of flowers, real green. It's beautiful now.
0: Very nice. And this cabin, it was part of a larger development. What did the Lincoln Hills Country Club development become? How did it earn a national reputation as a really great summer recreation spot? Now, my grandfather, when he
7: first bought the land, he wanted it to be a country club for black people. That was his, that was his plan. And that's why he built more than one cabin up there. And then, of course, Winx went up and built his cabin. And he was the one that had lodges for rent and for people to come up and sit at his lodge. And he's the one that had the place for the music and dancing and so forth. But our little cabin, we went up just for enjoyment to spend the night
0: and uh, stay up there over the weekend. And to help us understand how special Lincoln Hills was, Can you tell us what segregation was like in Denver in the 20s and 30s?
7: Well, you know, when we were kids, everything was fun for us. You know, the parents had to deal with what was going on in the city. But uh, we were the only ones in our block, only black people. And we played with our cousins. Our cousins lived next door. And was Lincoln Hills a special place for you? Lincoln Hills was a second home to us. Because we went up almost every weekend. We'd take our cousins. If we had room, we'd take our dog. So going up to the cabin was almost like a second home. When my dad would get off work on a Friday, we'd pack up the car. And we'd
0: all go up there and stay. And your brother named the cabin that your dad built Zephyr View after the California Zephyr train that went through the area. Would you mind reading from your childhood diary some of what you wrote about those visits? Okay, now this is
7: my diary, and I started my diary in 1930, let's see, in 1939. And I wrote in it every day for five years. I have a lot of names in here of my friends. And then I went to the camp called Camp Nazoni in 1939 on a Sunday. I went on the train, and we caught the train down there at the Union Station. So I spent a week at the camp with the girls. There were girls from all over the country, from uh, Chicago, Kansas City, and Missouri. So I met a lot of new friends. And, of course, up at the camp, we did a lot of fun things. And we um, did a lot of hiking. We washed our socks in the creek, we did a lot of fun things down at the creek and we had campfires. And uh, my dad sent me a dollar up there and I received that dollar on Thursday. So the mail must've been pretty good. But I didn't know what I was spending on, but we had a little, there was a post office and a store down at the hill, down the hill. And so we went there and we spent and got candy and stuff. And uh, I was sorry I had to leave. I left on a Saturday and the train was late, but I got home about 4.10. My dad picked me up at the station.
0: That sounds like so much fun. And what a treasure to have that diary. Judge Jackson, your mom brought you to the cabin from the time you were an infant. What childhood memories do you have from Zephyrs View?
8: You know, my memories are very similar to my mom. Uh, Going up to the Zephyrs View cabin was like a vacation. You know, it was an oasis for young people, young kids. You could hike the mountains. You could go to the uh, creek and throw rocks. You could go fishing. You could go across the creek and swim in the ponds. You could, from the cabin, watch the California Zephyr go by and the freight trains go by. And at night, you could look at the stars and the Milky Way. Uh, So it was a treasure to be able to go up there as kids.
0: There's a place at Lincoln Hills called Wink's Lodge, and your mom mentioned it. What is the history there?
8: Well, the history is is that uh, Wink's Lodge is one of the very few Black-owned resorts back in the 20s. And when I say Black-owned resorts, there were only several of them. There was Idlewild in Michigan. There was Oak Bluffs in uh, Martha's Vineyard. There was American Beach in Florida. And the only Black-owned resort west of the Mississippi was Wink's Lodge. And Wink's Lodge was a six-room mountain lodge in which uh, Black people from across the country would come to Denver to recreate basically from Memorial Day to Labor Day. A lot of the luminaries, the Black luminaries that would come to Denver, that would be musical artists or those individuals that would go down to five points to play in the clubs at Five Points. After performing in Five Points, they would come up to Wink's Lodge to recreate. You know, they did that because uh, back in those days, and we're talking about the 20s, 30s, 40s, and even the 50s, Black performers, Black literary artists could not stay in the white hotels because of segregation. So they would... If they were not staying, let's say, in a rooming house for, that was owned by black people in Denver, they would go up to Winks Lodge and uh, stay there.
0: And tell us about some of the people who stayed there. There are a lot of really famous names.
8: Well, when I say luminaries, if we're talking about musicians, there were individuals like Count Basie, Duke Ellington, Louis Armstrong, Lena Horn. If we're talking about some of the political activists during those days, Whitney Young, who was the first black Urban League director, he would stay at Winx Lodge on his way to going to Aspen for a think tank in Aspen. There were some uh, authors, writers of books, Zora Neale Hurston. She was a part of the Harlem Renaissance. She uh, would come to Winx Lodge.
0: Well, wow, I love her book, The Eyes are Watching God. It's almost a century old now. Do you still have family treasures decorating your cabin?
8: Yeah, we have treasures that bring back both positive and negative images. I can give you an example. My great-grandfather, when he came from Missouri, he brought with him a sign that said, colored restroom only. So above our restroom, our bathroom in the cabin, this wooden sign hangs above the, uh, bathroom so that we will always remember our history and always remember the hurdles that we had to overcome. We I have other memorabilia in the cabin. My grandmother graduated from an historic black college, Lincoln University in Missouri. I have her college graduation certificate that she received in 1917. So that's a memorabilia that we have in the cabin that also talks about our past, talks about the period of time when uh, Black people could not go to any other colleges other than historic Black colleges.
0: Hmm. there's a lot of history there. Now, I want to bring 14-year-old Nelani Benson into the conversation. She's been coming to the resort with a group of girls since middle school. Hi, Nelani. Hi. What brought you to Lincoln Hills?
4: I used to go to a heart and hand, it's an after-school program. And one of my teachers gave me a scholarship to go to the program. And I was so happy about it because I love horses. And that's what got me to the program.
0: Do you ride horses when you're out there? Yes. That sounds really exciting. What else do you enjoy at Lincoln Hills?
4: The history behind it was very awesome to see. We did um, hike up to the lodges and stuff, like Winks Lodge. We saw um, the cabin that Lena Horne stayed in and there was tons of pictures of her all throughout the cabin. It was so amazing to see.
0: Nelani, I would love for you to take over my job for a little bit. What questions do you have for Mrs. Jackson?
4: One of my questions is, what advice would you give me to deal with um, discrimination or racism?
7: Oh, that's a good question. You just stand up for your right and be who you are. Don't let anyone say you can't do something or you can't go here. Always be yourself and all, and for one thing, always vote. I never missed the vote, even for the school board. I went to caucus. When I went to the caucus, I was able to be a judge and I was a judge for oh, over 15 years. So, I'll tell you, do the things that you want to do. If you can't get through the door, go through the window. Be sure and keep your dreams. Always do what you want to dream, what you dream of being, and just be who you are. And always tell your history. Don't let anyone not tell you to not say this or not say that. Always write your history down. I like to write. So, write a lot, write a journal. Write things down because so many things I have forgotten, but I have written journals ever since I was 15 years old. So I could always go back to my journals and read what I've written and uh, remember those memories I had when I was young. And um, just always just follow your, just follow your dreams. Dream big, though. Thank you.
0: Thank you all. All three of you, thank you so much
8: for being here.
0: Thank you for asking me.
8: Thank you very much. I enjoyed.
0: Yes, thank you for having me. Denver District Court Judge Gary Jackson with his mother Nancy Jackson and 14-year-old Neilani Benson Wortham sharing their stories with me last August from Lincoln Hills, which was the only black-owned resort west of the Mississippi when it was built in the 1920s. Since we first spoke, Jackson's cabin, the Zephyr View, was designated a local historic landmark in Gilpin County. That's Colorado Matters for today. Thanks for joining us, and thanks to the team that helps bring this show to air.
1: Carl Bielek.
0: Allie Butner, Andrea Dukakis.
2: Michelle
7: Fulcher.
1: Matt Hers, Michael Hughes.
2: Carla Jimenez.
1: Pedro Lumbrano,
2: Alexandra McMahon.
1: Patrice Mondragon. Shane Rumsey. Ryan Warner. Paolo Shalsana.
0: With special thanks to freelance producer Carol McKinley, I'm Avery Lill. This is CPR News.